This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. We are, more than ever before in our culture, being constantly seduced by design. Our world is so saturated with design now that we can hardly separate ourselves from it. Though much of design is explicit and sometimes obvious, and yes, I am talking about the target ads here, we hardly notice that in so doing, it is continually reorganizing us. I'm wondering now if it is possible that design is taking over the social role that music or fashion have served over the last half a century. It seems to me that design is becoming the most important, but also the least understood influencers of our culture and our consciousness today. The idea of what is intrinsically beautiful or cool or fat or blazon has become more elusive, more revolutionary, even controversial. No longer is beauty limited to a pretty face or a pretty package. Beauty has really become, has come to personify and reflect the social and cultural issues of our day. Now we end up defining a generation by the products they buy. Think of the iPod. Think of the Mini Cooper. Think of a Blackberry. These products are no longer being differentiated by flavor or form or price. They're being differentiated by the difference they're making in our lives and the attitudinal difference it creates in the passionate zealots that participate in these new consumer cults. And what's interesting is these attitudes are cross-generational. Think about how we used to signify or segment generations. We had the boomers, we had Generation X, we had Generation Y. If you look at the generation now, Everybody that's old wants to be young. Everybody that's young wants to be old. And the generation is now far more attitudinal than it could be segmented demographically. And design has become the leading factor in that segmentation. Whether we like it or not, these objects, these Blackberries, these iPods, these Mini Coopers, they're now also defining us. As we give style to our character, we do nothing more now than claim and renounce freedoms and choices. Style now ends up signifying our beliefs and our affiliations. And with choice comes affiliations, and with affiliations, here it comes, come brands. Brands create intimate worlds. Inhabitants can understand where they can be somebody and feel as if they belong. Brands create tribes. In 2005, people can join any number of tribes in any number of ways and feel part of something bigger than who we all are individually. We can belong to the Callaway Club when we play golf, the VW Tribe when we drive to work, the Williams-Sonoma Tribe when we cook a meal, the Nike and Juicy Clubs when we work out. I remember when I was a little girl and my dad drove around in his beautiful Porsche 911, I remember that when he passed another one on the road, he always acknowledged the other driver, and the driver always acknowledged him back. It was the private Porsche 911 club, but it wasn't just the Porsche club. It was the Porsche 911 club. Certainly, the hippest club going right now is the iPod club. 
Um, when just a wee bit of the white headphones is visible to the passing crowds, everybody can look at each other knowingly and say, hey, I belong to that crowd too. I think Marty Neumeyer stated it best when he confides his thoughts about sneakers and the sneaker tribe in his book, The Brand Gap. He says, as a weekend athlete, my two nagging doubts are that I might be congenitally lazy and that I might have little actual ability. I'm not really worried about my shoes, but when the Nike folks say, just do it, they're peering into my soul. I begin to feel that if they understand me that well, their shoes are probably pretty good. I'm then willing to join the tribe of Nike. But to see the world in brand tribes is to take possession of much, much, much more than just a theory of the world. It is to possess a theory of all the activity in it, perhaps an entire science, an ethology that could tell us everything we want to know about human behavior. And what would we find out if we were to analyze that style in regards to our culture and to human behavior today? And what the heck does design have to do with it? I think actually a lot. Design makes things move, but that is truly the least of its power. But the type of movement that design projects into objects has the intention to make other things move. Design modifies objects so they, in turn, can modify our culture. I think that the ultimate goal of a brand is to change the culture in which we participate, which evokes a unique composition of perceptions. The extension of any one of these perceptions ends up altering the way that we think, the way that we act, and the way we perceive the world. When these perceptions change, people change. I contend that brand and its inherent dependence on design and thus design change has more impact on our culture than any other medium. And with me today to talk about design, culture, change, and transformation is one of the world's most interesting cultural anthropologists. Dear listeners, we are so incredibly fortunate to have with us today Dr. Grant McCracken. Grant McCracken holds a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago in Cultural Anthropology and has been the director of the Institute of Contemporary Culture, a senior lecturer at the Harvard Business School, a visiting scholar at the University of Cambridge, and now he is an adjunct professor at McGill University in Montreal. He is the author of eight books, including Culture and Consumption, Plentitude, Big Hair, and Transformation. He's consulted widely in the corporate world for Coca-Cola, for Ikea, for Chrysler, for Kraft, for Kimberly-Clark, and he's a member of the IBM ThinkPad Marketing Advisory Council. This spring, Indiana University Press will publish a new book, Culture and Consumption 2, Markets, Meaning, and Brand Management. Welcome, Grant. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Debbie. Well, today we're going to talk about everything. <laughs> um, I'd like to start our conversation today by talking about, of all things, blogs. You have an exceptional blog, which can be found at your website at www.cultureby.com, and you are the author of four acclaimed books. But, so why a blog? Um, I guess, you know, you can't do a uh, you can't build a picture of contemporary culture unless you're prepared to be many blind men with uh, with an elephant. Um, which is to say, you want to keep going at things from different points of view, and blogging every day kind of forces that discipline. You keep returning to contemporary culture. You keep engaging with some small part of it, and you be, 
continue to kind of interrogate it until you start to build up these somewhat larger patterns in the hopes that those larger patterns will we begin to cohere into something like a, a systematic uh, concept of, of what we're doing. Of course, the postmodernists say that systematic concept is no longer possible, but as an anthropologist, I'm, um, I'm deeply wedded to the notion that there is a culture and that it's a, a single culture and that it has uh, basic structural characteristics, dynamic as it is, um, and so uh, I haven't given up the ghost on that one. What do you think are the basic structural characteristics of the culture that we're living in now? Well, one of the striking ones certainly is the the extent to which we are now self-inventing, um, and that feels like the kind of the natural uh, descendant of the individualism that's been transforming Western societies certainly since the 18th uh, century, and um, <clears throat> you know, and that's that's really the the one to keep an eye on because anthropologists are accustomed to looking at cultures which are very particular about who the individual is and, and can be. And, and, you know, and at your moment of birth, you're kind of assigned certain gender and class and status and mythic identities. And you don't have a lot of choice about, about who you can be in the world. And that's obviously very different in Western societies, especially postmodernist ones, where the individual is underdefined. We don't, we don't, we don't, insist that we know who a woman is or a man is, we say, well, there are many ways of being a man, many ways of being a woman. It's up to the individual to craft that identity by, by their own efforts. And I think it, to, to refer to your, your excellent opening, um, I think brands and design are, are one of the crucial ways in which we engage in that process of self-invention. Well, you talk quite a lot about self-invention. I actually have a quote here that I want to read about uh, self-invention and transformation. And this is from your book, uh, Big Hair, and this is something from your introduction. And if you don't mind, I'd just like to read a couple of paragraphs and then talk about them. Um, you write, we all now live lives of active transformation. This is one of the great accomplishments of our cultural tradition and one of the great joys of our personal lives. We change often and a lot. Increasingly, transformation has become the single constant of our lives. These changes are astonishing. We can go from being a person who cares passionately about her social life to someone who wants nothing more than a solitary walk in the country, spaniel in tow. From someone who never misses a Sunday Times to someone who hardly, hardly ever reads a local paper. From someone defined by her children to someone defined by her work. From someone who lives to be married to someone who lives to be single again. In most, most cultures, any one of these changes would be the work of a lifetime. In our culture, they all occur in a single lifetime or even in a couple of years. You, you then go on to talk about how this self-invention uh, was at a time impossible. What changed in our culture to allow for this massive morphing? I think some of it is just a, a, a bloody-mindedness that's built into the Western tradition. Um, uh, there's a wonderful passage in a book by Sir Thomas Eliot called the book called The Governor, in which he records what happens when a nobleman is walking through Elizabethan England, um, actually pre-Elizabethan, Tudor England, um, when, when uh, a gentleman walks by and refuses to acknowledge the acts of deference that are given him by the subordinates on the street. And he says, um, nay, nay, men's hearts be free, and they will love whom they list, and all do murmur in consent as it were bees. What he's saying there is that this nobleman comes along and casts a scorn, scornful glance on, on the crowd that is supposed to defer to him, and you can, you can hear Eliot recording the, the, the angry murmur of the crowd as they say, if I can use unparliamentary language for a moment, 
screw you, buddy. You don't know who I am. We, I know who I am. And when we give you this act of deference that defines you and defines us, we do it as a voluntary act. That's a kind of virus of individualism, of the individual individual's right to define themselves by their own efforts. I think, you know, there it is in 16th century England. So it's been in our cultural tradition for at least four centuries. And, and, and I think it's, you know, it often expresses itself as a kind of revolutionary impulse on the part of group. Wow. Group, right? So all women say, no, you may not engage in this kind of stereotyping, stereotyping, this diminishing kind of attitude towards women. Well, Grant, I'm going to ask if we can um, stop for a moment. Um, I'd like to really come back and talk about this virus of individualism. It's actually the first time I've ever heard that term. Um, I'd like to let our listeners know that they are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. We will be back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. Tune in every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for Big Business Marketing for Small Business Budgets. Big Business Marketing for Small Business Budgets is completely dedicated to helping small businesses thrive and be more profitable. On the show, learn leading practices for bonding emotionally with customers and securing lifetime loyalty. This one-of-a-kind talk show is hosted by Jeanette McMurtry, author of the book, Big Business Marketing for Small Business Budgets and John Cooper, veteran marketing and leadership consultant. Together, they will keep you up to date on marketing trends and how to create passionate customers for life. So log on to Big Business Marketing for Small Business Budgets with Jeanette McMurtry and John Cooper every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. The truth is that most Americans are truly misinformed about health-related issues. Do you know what your doctor is really charging you for? For the truth on what's really going on, tune into Life Lessons with Dr. Lawrence James Jr. every Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time. On the show, Dr. Lawrence James Jr. will discuss everyday social and political issues that affect you. So won't you please join Dr. Lawrence James Jr. for Life Lessons every Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. You're listening to BusinessAmericaRadio.com on the SurfNet Radio Network. Brought to you by SurfNet Media Group, publicly traded under the symbol SFNM. BusinessAmericaRadio.com Do you find that technology is hard to understand? Tune in each week to Tech Talk with computer geek John DeVore. Every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific, John will let you know what is new and upcoming in the world of technology, as well as teach you some simple things to help you use your computer to your advantage. From gadgets to gizmos and PCs to PDAs, Tune in and get high-tech with John DeVore and Tech Talk every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific, right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. Are you tired of sitting on the bench? Are you ready to get in the game? Then join David Hayes and Jim Inman every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 Eastern, for The Coach, exclusively on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. The Coach is a program by financial professionals for financial professionals. Know the techniques used on the field by top financial professionals for personal and professional success. Get off the bench and join the coach every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 Eastern, live on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business.
Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now, back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 319 Eastern Standard Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the brilliant and esteemed cultural anthropologist, Dr. Grant McCracken. He is broadcasting live from Chicago while he is visiting the offices of the brand consultancy, Lipson L. Porklass and Associates. This is part one of our two-part conversation. Grant will also be my guest on the show next week. If you'd like to join our conversation or if you have a question for either of us, please call 1-866-233-7861. And Grant, before the break, we were talking about the virus of individualism. Tell me more about that, please. Yeah, I think uh, most uh, simply it's the kind of bloody-mindedness that all of us feel when somebody presumes to tell us who they are, especially when they try to tell us who we are according to the stereotypes that define us. So, you know, when somebody decides that they know who we are because we're African-American or male or elderly or, or a professional or not a professional, um, uh, that's the moment where we say, no, no, absolutely not. You can't know. You can't assume to know. You certainly can't or act upon the assumption that I am a particular kind of person because that's up to me to choose. So I think here's where it gets tricky. Everybody kind of agrees that, in fact, everyone now is refusing stereotypes. My argument is the group plays a very limited kind of relatively short-term role, that you band with other African Americans or males or elderly people to resist the stereotype. But once you've broken those down, you want to step out of the tiny... relatively small community of which you were, the battle group of which you were a part, and go your own way. Of course, there's always a tremendous tension inside the group where people insist that, no, 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 to honor the revolution, you must continue to be a certain kind of person. And now you set up this paradox where people have traded one set of stereotypes for another set of stereotypes. They're now just as constrained in who they can be in their revolutionary moment as they were before the revolutionary moment. So, as I say, I think that's a short-term um, and, and, and kind of troubling uh, stage, and that eventually falls away. It's sounding like a Marxist, aren't I? With these <laughs> I, I don't know. know. We'll have to have our callers uh, tell us. <laughs> if they, they think you sound like a Marxist. I personally don't. But what I, what I do find interesting is the sort of banding into stereotypes. Um, what I'm finding now is that there these tribes that I was talking about in in my introduction to the show, where you know you you buy into a certain tribe by having the same accoutrement as other people in that tribe. So you know even back 30 years ago when I was driving with my dad in his Porsche 911, you know that little nod, that little tiny acknowledgement that he gave drivers that might also have the same car, is the same exact thing that's happening now when people pass each other on the street with a little white uh, earplugs of the iPod, and and those are also people that are very purposefully banding into a stereotype in order to feel better about themselves, in order to feel like they fit in, in order to feel like they're part of a tribe or part of a cult. Yes. I think the thing we we acknowledge too little in this culture is that it's extremely difficult to do what we're doing when we invent a self. It's a lonely, difficult, uh, sometimes painful undertaking, and we we almost always sometimes do it badly as a result of which great confusions are are created. Which is to say, you know, we love to have those moments of mutual recognition when we see somebody who's made the kinds of choices we have made. 
Well, it makes us feel better about ourselves making that very choice. If somebody else did it, then it must be a good choice. Exactly right. But I think the moment that group then says, okay, listen, what you have to pay for that moment of community is that you now must act this way or this way or that way. That's the moment we, we get bloody-minded again and we say, you know, no, absolutely not. I decide who I am and how I shall live. But who's doing that now? I mean, the moments of community that you're talking about are are all being seized upon with actual products as opposed to really sound ideas. I mean, what moments of community now can you point to that are Marxist, for example, or that are um, more politically driven than blue versus red? Yeah. Well, I, I think... I'm interested to hear you take this position because it seems to me you sometimes take a position that says designers are creating meanings for the brand that the individual then uses to help create who they are. And I'm really, I mean, I really like the sound of that. I mean, I think that's exactly true. I spend a lot of time talking to consumers or people of one kind or another, and you can watch them deploying the meanings of iPodness or Volkswagen-ness in the construction of who they are. And they're not slavish about it. They're not... Um, oh, see, I think they are slavish about it, actually. Do you? Well, I do. cynicism I don't embrace. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's the longstanding intellectual take on a consumer culture, is that it turns out it is uniform in what it is, and it creates conformity in the people who belong to it. And I must say, when I do my anthropology, I do my ethnography, I talk to people out there. I don't meet any dupes. I don't meet any people who are these brand robots or, you know, designer uh, templates with, with legs kind of thing. I, you know, I talk to people who are engaged in a very interesting um, uh, process of inventing themselves as they go. That's very interesting. So you really actually feel optimistic about what's happening in our culture right now. Yeah, generally speaking, I think it's, you know, painful and, and, and confusing at times, as I said, but I think uh, it's, it's, it's what a certain kind of freedom has to look like. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's nothing more wonderful than having the choices that we, as Americans in particular, have. Because, I mean, where else can you go into a shopping channel and find, you know, 78 versions of of over-the-counter painkillers? I mean, there's an enormous amount of choice. With that choice, though, it does allow us to align ourselves with certain affiliations that with or without our knowledge, begin to, um, in many ways, I think, describe who we are by making those very choices. I mean, there are people that feel that they're only making choices that are based on price. That was a discussion that we had last week on the show. You know, people that are absolutely certain the things that they're buying are things that they choose primarily because it costs less than something else and the value seemed um, to be of equal or higher value in terms of what they were going to be choosing. Um, I, I really, I really believe that, that that is not the case for the most part. I mean, I often talk to people that say that they that, that think that somebody isn't going to buy something from them because of what it costs, and I, I challenge that concept by then saying to them, if how many times have you been confronted with wanting to buy something and it being something that you couldn't necessarily afford, but you had to have it? You made the decision that money was not the lead gene in buying something because of how badly you wanted to have it. I truly, truly don't believe that if you want something bad enough, you're going to deny it to yourself 
I mean, in, in, I'm, I'm talking about in relative ways. I'm not talking about, you know, finding a way to buy, you know, an airplane when, when you couldn't even potentially afford to buy a bicycle. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that if people want to buy things, they find a way to do that, and it's primarily based on what they believe that thing itself is going to provide for them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, what's strange is we've, we've talked a lot or think a lot about the role of design in people's lives and the way it makes meanings for brands and how those make meaning, those brands make meaning for the consumer. But you would expect in these circumstances that we would have seen a profession spring up of sort of like lifestyle designers, um, people who, with whom we can sit down and help us kind of work through these choices. And therapists sort of sometimes do it. Hairdressers sort of sometimes do it. Um, personal friends sort of sometimes do it, but it, it is almost the most difficult thing we're going to have to do with our lives, and, and we're left. It, it's, I think, some measure of the extent to which this culture is not fully kind of comprehending of, of what it's made of itself and what it's making of, of us, that we don't have a, a profession d- dedicated to this task. I think that's really interesting. I read today that hairdressers are actually the highest rated group of professionals in terms of their happiness factor doing what they do. Oh, no kidding. Huh? I find that really interesting that you, that you yeah. mentioned hairdressers, that of, of all the people doing um, work in this country, the, the highest rated satisfaction among themselves is hairdressers. I think followed very closely by plumbers. And apparently it has a lot to do with working with your hands, having your own business, and being sort of the master of your own domain. Absolutely. And I think in the case of the hairdresser and his or her client, you know, it's an incredibly intimate relationship, and there's lots of very uh, careful counsel. You know, people are listening really hard. They're talking very carefully. Life decisions are being made when people are not trying to decide on, you know, how to change somebody's haircut. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a rich, uh, but, you know, how much, how much prestige do we give to hairdressers? Not, plainly not enough. So no, yet, no. Sort of catch up. But I find it really interesting um, when you're talking about, you know, style counsel, so to speak, or style advice. I mean, I think that there are trend masters out there that are more specifically oriented to segments, you know, whether it be food or um, um, beauty, people like Orbe or people like Ina Garten or people like... Um, Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart is probably the closest that we've come to a lifestylist, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Well said. And she's and, and and but she's not really customizing very carefully. And I was interested to see, or can't customize under those circumstances. I was interested to see in the Wall Street Journal today there was an article about how interior designers are offering not just advice on you know fabrics and so on, but quite particular advice on how you would live in the space they're creating or what that space should be given the way you live, and they have to ask very detailed questions about how you live. So, so it, it, it is emerging, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's something that I'd like to continue after the break. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit, a bit more about how we create the world around us and make the style choices that we do. Um, in the meantime, uh, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the brilliant cultural anthropologist, Dr. Grant McCracken. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. You're listening to The Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. 
Join Jane Curry and Diana Young every Monday at 8 a.m. for The Last Word. When you listen to The Last Word, you won't feel as though you're getting a root canal without anesthetic. And you'll leave every show with tips about how to write so you can get more promotions, make more money, and go home early. Learn how to add persuasive power to everything you write, from email to sales proposals, and get the praise and respect you deserve. So tune in and call in to The Last Word with Jane Curry and Diana Young every Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific, right here on the bottom line of business talk. Voice America Business. Are you looking for a unique perspective on today's market from an experienced economist? Well, look no further. Listen to The Economic Contrarian with host Mike Norman every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Business America Radio. Mike and his guests will discuss new trends in the marketplace as well as emerging companies and opportunities. So if you want in-depth analysis from a contrarian point of view, don't miss The Economic Contrarian Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time right here on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. Do you find that technology is hard to understand? Tune in each week to Tech Talk with computer geek John DeVore. Every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific, John will let you know what is new and upcoming in the world of technology, as well as teach you some simple things to help you use your computer to your advantage. From gadgets to gizmos and PCs to PDAs, tune in and get high tech with John DeVore and Tech Talk every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific, right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. Papa John's, Taxback, GNC, Subway. Everyone has visited one or more of these businesses. But have you ever thought about owning one? If you have the entrepreneurial spirit and are ready to start your own business or franchise, then you need to tune into Your New Career with Stuart Taylor every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time. On the show, Stuart and his experienced guests will let you know what is needed when starting your own business and how to make all of your business ventures a success. So tune in to Your New Career with Stuart Taylor every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time right here on Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.33 Eastern Standard Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the wonderful cultural anthropologist, Dr. Grant McCracken. He is broadcasting live from Chicago while he is visiting the offices of the brand consultancy, Lipson Alport Glass & Associates. This is part one of our two-part conversation, Lucky Me. Grant will also be my guest on the show next week. So if you'd like to join our conversation or if you have a question for either of us, please give us a call. We'd love to talk to you. Our number is 1-866-233-7861. And Grant, we do have a caller. Lisa from New York, you're on the air. Hi, Grant. Hi, Lisa. Um, As a point to what you said earlier about brands creating tribes, would you agree, then, that large tribes or big brands create unity between the masses, which could possibly lead to homogenization, and that smaller tribes, which would be smaller brands, uh, well, they're, the people that follow them, it leads to differ- differentiation? Right. Or would you yeah, disagree? I, my feeling is that I'm, I'm personally not crazy about the tribe metaphor, just because from an anthropological point of view, people normally don't belong to more tribes. 
more than one tribe at, at once. Uh, but clearly, as Debbie was saying, you know, we have multiple portfolios from a tribal point of view. We belong to three or four, and we swap them in and out, change them all the time. Um, I think that kind of um, definitional mobility on our part has given fits to the big brands, you know, the Cokes and the IBMs and the, and the Chryslers and so on. They're now obliged to speak to that multiplicity, different groups of, of consumers, and, and individual consumers who are a portfolio of different people. And so I think they've been forced to break down these monolithic brands that, you know, predominated in the 1950s, say, and make things that are much more subtle, much more carefully crafted. I mean, I think maybe this is one of the reasons that designers are playing such a big role in the crafting of brands now is precisely that they have the kind of subtlety, the, the control of nuance in, in the meaning-making process that people need to create these, these, broad, uh, these brands that speak to our new multiplicity. And then you're absolutely right. In addition to these big brands trying to learn a new language, you've got little niche brands that have the luxury of speaking very, very particularly to much, much smaller groups. And, and of course, they set up a lovely competitive dynamic where you know, the big brands were already trying to get, get better at mastering several particular voices. Now they have to get more and more astute in their, in their control of the grammar and the idiom. So, uh, yeah, but I think that the overall trend here is driving towards the, a kind of plenitude of possibilities, a, a fragmentation on the part of the consumer and, and on the part of the brand. Okay, thank you. You bet. Thank you for calling. Um, Grant, one of the things that you mentioned while you were answering the question was that you didn't feel it was possible to um, be participating in more than one tribe at once and that you oh, sorry, could certainly please. pull from portfolios of, of, of pieces, but that, I'm sorry, you said you were going to say something else? Yeah, I just, I meant to say that you can, in fact, belong to more, as you were saying, you can belong to more than one tribe at once. Oh, you can? Okay. Yeah, exactly. And that's what makes the metaphor kind of tricky for me because that's, normally speaking, not possible in the classic anthropological definition of, of a tribe. So what's changed in terms of the way that our culture is developing in that literally, as I, I, I mentioned in the quote that I had picked from your book, Big Hair, where you're literally morphing from one type of personality to another. The person that you might be during the day becomes very, very different than the person that you are in the evening, the person that you are on the weekends, the person that you are with your pets, the person that you are with your loved ones. Why are these, why are we segmenting our lives into these sort of tribal moments? Yeah. I, you know, in, in, the, in the book Transformation that's coming out, I don't know, sometime next year, I, I was toying with this notion of a kind of expansionary individualism. I think as individuals, we're just extremely curious about, you know, how many experiences, you know, you think about our great-great-grandparents' uh, uh, um, generation, the notion of uh, of difference was threatening, and indeed you'd go to war to defend yourself against it, and you'd participate in the, the most horrifying kinds of stereotyping and, and and hostility. And it feels to me like, as a culture, we're just vastly more comfortable with the idea of difference. And in fact, as as our fear went away, our curiosity became greater. So our notion, you look an awful lot of the games, PC-based, uh, computer-based game gaming. Um, and so certainly this has always been true of the, the world of the novel and of fiction. You know, these are vehicles that give us a glimpse of what it's like to be another creature. And I think we just mm, have this almost curiosity about, about what it's like to be another creature. And, and, and our technologies for giving us a glimpse of that are getting better and better. 
So we're putting on essentially the clothes and quotes from other tribes in these moments when we're trying to expand our individualism. Exactly. So we're, we're tribe hopping. And oh, tribe hopping. That's beautiful. One of, one of the big questions here is that, you know, postmodernists argue that, that, culture, that our culture is breaking down, that our ability to communicate meaning, uh, to create utterances that are meaningful in the design world or any world for that matter, is, is increasingly compromised, that there's been a kind of wear out of the symbols, that symbols and signs are, are increasingly diminished in their capacity to carry meaning. If that's true, then um, tribe hopping uh, becomes problematical. What happens when there are no tribes from which to hop, um, between which one hops? Um, how do we go seeking out new experiences if there are no little domains that define what an experience can be? And I, for one, think the postmodernists are wrong, but it's an open question. Yeah, I mean, I actually find that if indeed we are wearing out our symbols, either marketers or consumers or both, they, we might be complicit here, are actually trying really, really hard to hold on to those symbols as evidence of either our purpose or our place in the world right now. I mean, what, what I think is actually the more pessimistic view of branding is that people are using these things to almost to um, substitute any real sense of belonging. So by having these things, by attaching themselves to these things, they're creating a, a false sense of belonging when, in fact, it really isn't there. And, and, and that's the part of, of these symbols that I find to be most troubling. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a fair question. I mean, if, if the meaning-making machinery is actually breaking down, I think well, one of our empirical tests of this can be how it is that an ad can, can, in the course of 15 seconds, move us to, you know, amusement or, or whatever it does. And my sense is ads, you can still use 15, minutes to pretty, uh, 15 seconds to pretty good effect, and that, can, that must mean that we're still a pretty robust culture. Yeah, and I do think that from an anthropological standpoint, having images in front of us create us to feel certain ways about those images just by what they're projecting. I was reading recently um, the psychology of, of, of facial gestures and that, you know, you can stand in front of somebody, be smiling, and then, you know, just without anything else happening, very, very quickly the person standing across from you who you're smiling with towards will smile back. That's yeah. human nature. So if you're watching an advertisement on television and somebody is smiling, chances are you're going to start smiling too, which is yeah. – um, very sort of subliminal and eerie, but just part of human nature. Yeah. Um, before the break, while we were on our break, you mentioned to me that you were really interested in talking more about how uh, design um, as a supplier of meaning was beginning to take over the social role that music or fashion have served over the last half century. Um, why do you find that so fascinating? Well, I think, I mean, if we look at the, we look at the music industry, we're looking at extreme fragmentation. This kind of takes us back to the postmodernist question we were asking a moment ago. We're looking at, at such a diversity of musical taste, that the, and it actually takes us back to the, the, the question that your caller asked. Um, is it possible that, that musical taste is fragmenting and, and multiplying and, 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 um, so, and cross-referencing so thoroughly that there are no few tribes with which we could that we can use for identifying at least external identifying purposes um, and I think maybe that's why music is less important to us I think this is the point you made in the in, in the intro and I, I liked it a lot because in fact there are several in a culture that leaves it up to the individual to define who they are 
um, the individual then goes to several meaning makers to source the meanings they're going to use. They go to the movies, they go to music, they go to fashion, they go to brand design, go to a number of things. Um, um, and, uh, and, and, it, and it may be that music is fragmented so completely it cannot supply the same kind of identity materials that it used to. And, and that designers maybe have a, a more important role to play. Well, I think that, that celebrities, certainly um, many of the, the, the younger celebrities now are so dependent on designers, whether it be graphic designers, brand designers, market research firms, um, stylists, and so forth, to help craft their image. Um, there, there's very um, a very big uh, field right now for market research determining what song should be a hit on, on somebody's record, which song should be the next hit. Um, I'm really interested in, in why um, somebody like you, a cultural anthropologist, um, what your view of the uh, music industry right now is. Um, my, my sense is that the studios, that, that we're all waiting for the marketplace to catch up to what's happened to music. We still have a few labels. In fact, we have fewer labels than we had 10 years ago. It feels like we have this thing called the Internet that should make it possible for each of us to have access, a pretty disintermediated access, to the very artists we most particularly want to have a connection to. And what's going to disappear in the middle are these labels that are kind of effectively now in the way. They're big, clueless creatures. All they can do is sell the big blockbuster album, um, and that's the only way they sustain themselves. And what they neglect is this great profusion of innovation that's taking place at the, at the bottom or, or at the margin of the, of, of, the, of the culture. So what we need is, um, and I think this is going to be, seems to me that our culture, one of the ways to manage fragmentation is to set up um, a lot of editors in between. And we've got to monetize the model so that it's somebody who's now superbly good at tracking the music that's happening on the south side of Chicago can find a way of, of, of effectively playing the role of the, a, the traditional A&R man or woman for a studio, but playing it for much tinier segments. Mm -hmm. We have to figure out a way of getting value to him or to her so that you know, so they're sustained in that activity, and that gives us a window on. In, in short, I mean, what we've looked at is like, you know, sort of the traditional magazines and newspapers have been the media, the mediators of our knowledge of what's going on in the world of culture. We just need an entirely new model. Happily, we have the Internet, the technology that makes this all possible, but we don't yet have the business model that, that makes it make sense. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that after the break, and I think we also have a caller on the line waiting. So I'd like to let our listeners know that you're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the cultural anthropologist, Dr. Grant McCracken. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. From the stock market floor to your computer, you're listening to Voice America Business. Papa John's, Taxback, GNC, Subway. Everyone has visited one or more of these businesses, but have you ever thought about owning one? If you have the entrepreneurial spirit and are ready to start your own business or franchise, then you need to tune into your new career with Stuart Taylor every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time. On the show, Stuart and his experienced guests will let you know what is needed when starting your own business and how to make all of your business ventures a success. So tune in to your new career with Stuart Taylor every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time right here on Voice America Business. 
Join Jane Curry and Diana Young every Monday at 8 a.m. for The Last Word. When you listen to The Last Word, you won't feel as though you're getting a root canal without anesthetic. And you'll leave every show with tips about how to write so you can get more promotions, make more money, and go home early. Learn how to add persuasive power to everything you write, from email to sales proposals, and get the praise and respect you deserve. So tune in and call in to The Last Word with Jane Curry and Diana Young every Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific, right here on the Bottom Line of Business Talk. Voice America Business. You hear business show after business show all geared towards improving a company's bottom line. But what about your bottom line? How come no one ever talks about that? Finally, a show dedicated to the worker. The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, the work wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, the Crow Show is aimed specifically at the worker and their environment. From work skills and technology to dealing with bosses and coworkers, The Crow Show will give you insight on how to survive and prosper in today's workplace. The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk, heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, businessamericaradio.com. Achieve total wealth management. Listen to three-dimensional wealth with Roy Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern on Business America Radio. Three-Dimensional Wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a values-based approach to comprehensive total wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. Take your first step down the road of financial independence. Listen to Three-Dimensional Wealth with Roy Diefendorf, Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the bottom line in business talk, businessamericaradio.com. The bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now, back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only talk radio show on the air focusing on issues relating to graphic design, branding, and culture. I am Debbie Millman, your host, and my guest today, broadcasting live from Chicago, visiting the offices of brand consultancy with Pennell Park Glass and Associates, is the esteemed cultural anthropologist, Dr. Grant McCracken. And Grant, we have a couple of listeners with questions waiting. Uh, we have Ray from New York. Ray, Hello. a question? Yes, I do. Um, I'm just thinking about the conversation that you had, and lately I've been observing teenagers and even women in the Middle East with their new freedom. And I feel like in as much as people start to celebrate the freedom of choice with either, you know, coming of age or political freedom, that over time they end up all making the same choice. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if there's something yeah. about our psyches that's yeah. more interested in the ability to choose rather than the choice itself and if that might be dangerous for brands. Yeah. No, that's a great uh, question, great observation. And it's certainly true if we think about, you know, the, the, the first moments of the, uh, of the youth culture that was created in our culture in the 19, you know, the post-war period. In fact, teens were incredibly clannish. They were positively tribal uh, in, in the choices they made. But I think if we look what's, at what's happened to youth culture, you know, through the 20th century into the 21st century, we see it just fragmenting like crazy. So I think in those early moments, I mean, freedom is always a frightening thing. Um, it's especially uh, frightening when you're the first generation to have, you know, to have at it. Uh, and so there is an inclination to, to travel in groups uh, for, for safety. 
Um, but I think, you know, as, 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 as you move on a couple of generations, people begin to feel more comfortable with uh, using uh, freedom for, for, uh, in a more multi multiple way. Right. I just remember the old story about um, everyone in Russia was so upset about the lack of choices for even the simple thing such as plates and silverware. And then after, you know, after the wall came down and everyone was free, they opened up an Ikea, and then everyone once again had the same <laughs> plates and cups. So I just wonder if there's something yeah. about the freedom to, choice, which, to choose, which is more important than yeah. the brand you pick, and if that might be dangerous for brands yeah. trying to make, you know, a compelling difference. Yeah. I, you know, I think if we went to Russia now, if we went to Moscow now, we would see vastly more, uh, vastly more different than we saw just 10 or 20 years ago. So, again, I think it's just a, that, level, that rigidity, yeah. that narrowness is a short-term proposition. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ray. Thank you for calling. And we have Mike on the line. Hey, Mike. Hey, how are you? Good. Hello. How are you doing? Mike, you have a question? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, yeah. we can. All right. Um, I've really been enjoying this conversation. Um, Dr. McCracken, I have a, a comment or a question, I guess. Um, I tend to agree with you that I, I think the definition of tribes uh, for today's society isn't um, necessarily applicable because I think that tribes demand um, some sort of commitment from their members. And it seems like uh, consumer promiscuity is too easy today just based on the number of brands out there. Um, and, they, and they demand no commitment from the consumer. No, indeed. I, th I think that's well said, and the consumer problem is, is, is precisely right. Uh, um, you know, people move on. And then the question is, you know, are people just moving blindly and, and fatuously from brand to brand to brand, or is this driven by a deeper explanation, exploration for this experiential exploration, as it were? Do you have a sense of, of where it falls? Well, I don't know. I mean, it, interestingly, I think that, Kind of in contrast, what you said that music has managed to, especially today, reach people on that deeper level, um, and, and the output of that is even more interesting. Which is, um, as, as music in the last year or two, the technology has allowed people to really create these intense personal experiences. The opposite of, of tribes have emerged, where you get all these sort of ego casters walking around with their own playlist piped directly into their head. Yeah. They <laughs> They become, yeah. you know, not a part of society. Yeah, that's a nice point. That's, you know, we, we, we have diversified so much that we now are, you know, on the verge of being not a uniform society we were promised in the 1950s, but, but a place that's the captive of a kind of cultural solipsism where everybody is their own programmer and lives in their own musically constructed world. That's, that's a great point. Yeah, which, which almost obviates the need for some design at all, you could argue. But it's yeah. sort of a, a no. cyclical argument. So. No, exactly. But you could. I wonder if you couldn't say that the iPod becomes a way of, of becomes the brand, becomes the design that successfully captures um, the technology everybody is using to capture their difference or to, to cultivate their difference. But we still have some brands that the conduits, as it were, of the music can 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 help identify who we are and where we stand relative to one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Also, back to a point that Miss Millman was making earlier. Um, uh, about what you're willing to pay for. I mean, you know, one of the oldest marketing tricks in the book, if you can't sell something, is just make it way more expensive. <laughs> right. Um, and then all of a sudden it's imbued with all of this meaning that it otherwise might not have had. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the mysteries of the world of marketing, how pricing yep. can make meaning all in, all on its own. Yeah. Well, thank uh, you for calling, Mike. Thank you. Thanks, Mike.
Um, Grant, we were also talking a little bit uh, earlier in the show about celebrity, and I'm really curious to get your opinion on why, as a culture, are we so fascinated with celebrity now, especially celebrities that we might be very hard-pressed to pinpoint what exactly they're celebrities for. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, it's, it's certainly one of the puzzles of our contemporary culture that, that we are so celebrity crazy, and it's one of the things an anthropologist has to have an explanation for if he or she presumes to have an explanation for this culture. And, and, and my, I'm tempted to, to, to bundle it into this argument about identity uh, and, and cultural choice. Um, I think maybe we could say that, that these celebrities are a little bit like experimental vessels. And I just finished a, uh, a chapter on um, cars in the 1950s and the design thereof. And, and every time the Air Force created an experimental airplane, they would put X into the title, and it seemed to me, you know, this is a good metaphor for our celebrities. They really are X projects for us. <laughs> you, know, you know, we're watching to see what happens when you when you define a person this particular way and subject them to these particular stresses. And and you know, if we think identity construction is a difficult process for us in our workaday lives, imagine what it's like, you know, doing it under the glare of the Klieg lights and um, you know, with the nation watching kind of thing. Paris Hilton, you know, it always feels like you're watching an accident waiting to happen, or an accident is no longer waiting to happen. Or and, uh, accidents being happening on purpose, <laughs> being constructed to happen right in front of us. Exactly. I mean, but it's I very hard it's... for me to... Oh, I'm sorry, you were saying. No, no, please go ahead. I think that it's it's very... I find it, and I, I tend to be by nature a conspiracy theorist, but I find that, you know, these same celebrities that are so accident-prone from a cultural standpoint, I find it very hard to believe that these things aren't entirely manufactured. Um, and I think that in terms of, you know, celebrity as construction, I think that that dovetails right into the culture's fascination with these extreme makeover situations on television now and wife swap and I saw a, a TV show on in the UK which was far more progressive than here in the United States on forgive the French anal bleaching and this was you know the, the actual bleaching was being shown on regular television um, I, I find that just astonishing yeah yeah I mean I think everybody thought that in fact a popular culture would 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 eventually begin to resemble, you know, Matthew Arnold's notion of culture. It would become ever more refined and, and dignified, and you know, it would be culture capital C. Thank you very much. Most oh important. no! Yeah. In fact, what we're seeing is anything but. I mean, you know, there is a place for high culture, but but popular culture is is interested in everything, and and because there are no taboos about what you can talk about, what you can show, you know, we're having a kind of exhaustive um, inventory of, of, of the results of this human curiosity. Some of it are not very, um, not very pleasant. The good news is I think the intellectuals have stopped saying we're going to hell in a handbasket, the sky is falling. Now we're all just, we understand, we're just in this for the long term and we're going to see what happens. Well, Grant, these are topics that I'd like to pick up next week. Um, this is the part, the last, last minute or so of our show where um, I ask you about uh, the pop culture quiz. This is the part of the broadcast where I ask my guests some questions about things that are going on in the world right now. So, they don't know anything about pop culture. No, no, no. This is, the first one is easy. Chicken or the egg? Right. Oh, a chicken. Okay. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche or the Dalai Lama? <laughs> Nietzsche. Okay, two more questions because there's my cue to let you go. Um, the gates in New York City, art or gimmick? Oh, precious close to gimmick and a highly profitable one for their artists. 
<laughs> noise about the fact that he had no commercial intention. And then the designers in New York City want to know what you think, saffron or orange? <laughs> saffron. Okay. Well, folks, we've come to the end of our, our uh, fourth broadcast, and I'd like to thank Dr. Grant McCracken for joining me today and sharing his incredible intelligence and insight. I'd also like to thank the kind people at Lipson Port Glass in Chicago for hosting Grant. A big thank you to Eric Cage Larson for ideas and inspiration, and, of course, the wonderful people at Voice America Business, Denise Dion, Chris, Lori, and my executive producer, Brian, and my producer, Dion. I'd like to thank the staff at Sterling. Next week, please join us for part two of our fabulous conversation with Dr. Grant McCracken. Thank you for listening, and see you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.